We are in 1 Peter. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 18 uh, down to verse 22 this morning. And uh, the short of it is this. I get to share the gospel this morning. Uh, in fact, last night when I started thinking about this passage, I said to my family, I go, family, I get to preach the gospel tomorrow. And that fires me up. Because I get to share with the unbelievers who are here this morning who don't know who Jesus Christ is, the way of salvation and who Jesus Christ is. And if you're a believer here this morning, you get to be encouraged by the fact that your sins are forgiven and you have heaven to look forward to. And so I'm going to try not to get fired up right away. Well, wait, I'm just going to kind of take off like a plane and get fired up. But no, we get to learn about the gospel and I'm so excited to, to open up God's word. And we're going to take... A, a scuba gear. We're going to put it on and we're going to dive down into the depths of the gospel uh, this morning. We're not going to be hovering over the water looking down at it. We're not going to be snorkeling just on top of it. We're going to get down deep into the gospel this morning because its depths are just so, so good for us to understand and it will make our praise go higher and higher. And so 1 Peter chapter 1 verse, or excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18. Let's just read it down to verse 22. It says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, when the ark was being prepared, in which a few that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. This passage, this section, verses 18 down to verse 22, is about victory. If you want to write something in the heading or in the side of your Bible there in the notes, bracket verses 18 to 22 and write victory with an exclamation point. What Peter has done for us is he has talked about suffering. He's talked about suffering all the way back in chapter 1 uh, in verse 6. He's talked about suffering in chapter 2. He's talked about suffering in chapter 3. He's writing to these, these suffering, persecuted believers who are standing strong for their faith. Nero has come in and he has ripped them out of their homes. He has killed them for their faith. And Peter's addressing these suffering, persecuted Christians. And he keeps reminding them of this. Your identity is in Christ. Christ has died for you. You are a sojourner. You don't live for this world anymore. You live for Christ. And you have been persecuted, yes. But I also want to remind you, verse 18, the first section there, the first phrase, for Christ also suffered. He encourages them and says to them uh, that Christ has died for their sins. He encourages them and, and says to them that Christ has been, been raised to life, victoriously raised to life. And that he sits on his throne in heaven, verse 22, victoriously reigning over all. This is about victory through suffering. Just as Christ suffered 
and was victorious. So you who are suffering and persecuted for righteousness' sake will also be victorious because you belong to Christ. Tom Schreiner says this about this section. We're going to kind of get, uh, get a little 30,000 feet view here, and then we're going to plumb, plumb the depths of it. He says this, Believers should not become imitated or, uh, in suffering. Excuse me. Believers should not become intimidated. That, that makes more sense. Intimidated. Believers should not become intimidated in suffering, but continue to sanctify Christ as Lord, because the suffering of Christ was also the means by which he was exalted. Just as suffering was the pathway to exaltation for Christ, so also suffering is the prelude to glory for believers. This paragraph then, with all its imperative, uh, interpretive difficulties, does not veer away from the situation of the readers. Rather, the emphasis on Christ's victory reminds believers that the troubles of this present time are temporary. That victory is sure because Christ has triumphed over evil powers. The theme of the text, therefore, is not the, Im the imitation of Christ, contrary to some scholars, but his victory over evil, a victory believers will share since they belong to him. John MacArthur says this, the point is that Christ, even though suffering unjustly, triumphed in that suffering. That's the message. His point is very, very clear. Jesus suffered unjustly. He suffered for doing what was right, and God caused him to triumph, a, a marvelous and glorious truth that should give us great hope in our suffering. That should give any believer who endures suffering for righteousness' sake a great confidence that God sounds a note of victory in the midst of that difficulty. And I know this. No doubt there are some of you right now who are feeling defeated because of suffering. Some of you are feeling overwhelmed by the difficulties of living the Christian life. You've been standing secure. You've been standing on the promises of God, but you've been pushed over. You've been holding true to the faith and your coworkers don't like it and you're being persecuted. You've been standing for the faith and maybe your spouse doesn't like it and you've been persecuted. Maybe your friends have been persecuting you and you feel defeated. Believer, I want to tell you this morning, just from the start, there is victory in Christ. And you belong to Christ, therefore you will be victorious in and through your suffering. Christ triumphed. Christ was victorious. It says there, from the very start, it says, for Christ, verse 18, for Christ also suffered. That word there, maybe your Bible translates it death. Suffered and death, the words are used interchangeably here, and, and we know this, that Christ suffered to the point of death. He ties in the suffering of believers and said, hey, I know you are suffering an unjust suffering. So Christ also suffered unjustly, but his suffering was to the point of death. 
This is what his suffering led to. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering Savior, the suffering Messiah who would come and die for the sins of the world. And so those words there, when we talk about the suffering Savior, we're talking about the death of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered for our salvation. Christ died for our salvation. And there's three points here to this paragraph that I want to lay out for you. And then we're going to just talk about the first one. The first point is this, three sections here is this, Christ's victorious death was to bring the unrighteous to God. That's in verse 18. Christ's victorious death was to bring the unrighteous to God. Secondly is this, Christ's victorious death was proclaimed over demons. It was proclaimed over demons. That's the second part, and many of you are excited for when we get to uh, talk about that. That's not this week. You're going to have to wait till next week. And then third is this. Christ's victory over, over death is displayed in the resurrection, ascension, and his supreme rule, rule over all. That's verses 21 and 22. So that's a breakdown of this section on the victory we have in Christ through suffering. Let's take the first one. Christ's victorious death was to bring the unrighteous to God. Let me just read verse 18 for us again, and that's where we'll sit and we'll land and we'll talk about it. It says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. If you want to underline one section in that verse, one part of that verse, if you haven't already underlined the entire thing, then underline this phrase. It's looked over so often. It's this, that he might bring us to God. This verse right here, one commentator says this about this verse. This verse is one of the shortest and simplest and yet one of the richest summaries given in the New Testament of the meaning of the cross of Jesus in one verse. So we're going to look at this. In one verse, we get a full explanation of the gospel. And the whole point of the gospel is there, that we would be brought to God. Because right now, for all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, you are separated from God. And so he gives us the gospel. Peter loves going back to the gospel. He does this from the very beginning all the way in his introduction. In the first three, three uh, verses, he gives us the gospel. Chapter 1 and verse 3, he gives us the gospel. Chapter 1 and verse 18, he gives us the gospel. Peter can't help but give us the gospel. Because he knows this. The best way that he can encourage suffering believers is to point them back to Christ to point them back to the gospel. And so here he goes again. This is it. There's four aspects of Christ's victorious death here that I want to show you to encourage you. The first one is this. Christ's death is sufficient. Christ's death is sufficient. Look what it says. For Christ also suffered... Here's the word, once 
for sins. Christ suffered once. One time is enough. One time was enough. Christ died once for sins. He does not need to die again. He died one time. He does not need to suffer again. He died one time. He does not need to come back to earth again. He came one time with one mission to die for the sins of the world. In fact, this word here, this Greek word, hapax in the Greek, it means this, perpetual validity not requiring repetition. Perpetual validity not requiring repetition. Meaning this, this one-time act was sufficient. This one-time act is truth, it is valid, and it does not need to happen again. It cannot happen again, and it will not happen again. You remember in the Old Testament, the Old Testament priests would come and they would sacrifice year after year a lamb. They were required by God. God had, had these very detailed description of what, what was required for payment for their sin. And it was a perfect lamb. And every year on the Day of Atonement, they would come and sacrifice a lamb. Every year, year after year after year, for thousands of years, that was the requirement to bring people to God. No more. The perfect Lamb of God has come. John the Baptist said when he saw Christ for the first time, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26 and 27. It states this, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and becomes higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first of his own sins and then of the people's. For he died once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. In Hebrews 10.10 it says this, By that, Will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all? In Hebrews 10, 12, it says this, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Meaning this, it was complete. It was satisfactory. It was perfect. It was forever. Christ came one time to die for the sins of the world. Sacrifice of Christ doesn't need to happen over and over and over again. As is taught by the Roman Catholic Church, where the priest supposedly sacrifices the Lord Jesus Christ on the altar each time they take communion. And what they call the transubstantiation of Christ, where the body turned or the, the the bread turns into the body of Christ the literal body of Christ the wine turns into the literal blood of Christ and you can look into their their statements their official dogma in the the catechism of the catholic church or the the catholic encyclopedia and it says this that the lord jesus christ actually 
leaves his throne in heaven at the command of the Roman Catholic priest in order to enter into the Eucharist and wine in order to be sacrificed again and again on the altar in the church. This is how they, quote-unquote, receive Christ. In that sense, Christ never fully defeated death because he keeps being sacrificed over and over and over again. But that's not what the Bible says. The victory that we have in Christ is that he died once for the sins of those who would believe. There's nothing Satan wants more than for Christ to continually be killed upon the cross over and over and over and over again without any victory. But it says here this, Christ also suffered what? Once for sins. It's sufficient. Secondly is this, Christ's death is for sin. Christ's death is for sin. Christ's victorious death, one time for your sins. Now we need to be reminded of this. Uh, Romans 3.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. Romans 3.23, just wanted to keep you on your toes there. Okay, Romans road people. Okay, Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many people have sinned? All. All are guilty of sin. Mankind has a sin problem. There's a report out that says this amongst Americans in a, in a new poll on the state of theology. It says this, that 71% of Americans agree everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 71%. Born innocent in the eyes of God. 66% agree everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this, that through one man's sin, Adam, death reigned and death was passed down. Sin was passed down from one generation to the next we're sinners not because we're sin, we sin, we're sinners because our nature within us that was given to us and passed down to us causes us to sin. We know nothing other than to sin without Christ. We're captive to our sin. We're enslaved to our sin. We are born with a sin nature. You don't have to teach somebody how to sin. It's within them to do so. If you don't believe me, go into the nursery. Nobody needs to teach them how to steal a ball from somebody else and run away from it. Nobody needs to teach them how to be selfish. Mankind has a serious sin problem. In fact, the greatest problem that mankind has is the fact that we are sinners and separated from a holy God. Nobody's born innocent. Nobody could remain innocent in the eyes of God. We are all guilty of sin, and therefore we are condemned by our sin to eternal punishment. 
separated from God, a God who cannot look upon evil, a God who cannot tolerate sin, a God who must, in His justice, punish all sin. That is the state of mankind. And what makes Christ's death distinctive from anybody else who has died is that that Christ's death uniquely deals with the sins of the world. And the reason why it uniquely deals with the sins of the world is because Christ himself was sinless. Christ himself has the resume by which he can die for somebody else because he himself has not sinned. He has a perfect resume. He can actually die for somebody else's sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, meaning this, because of our sin, we must die for it. That's the penalty. That's the payment. Since the garden, way back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, since the very beginning, the payment for sin is death. And what happens for your sins, church? It's not that you died. It is that Christ died for your sins and offered you forgiveness. Full and final forgiveness for your sins. In 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Peter has already told us, You've been purified your souls by the obedience of the truth and the sincere brotherly love of one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again out of perishable seed of the imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. In chapter 2, he says a similar thing there. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself bore our sins in his body that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. In Galatians 1, 4, it says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present age according to the will of our God and Father. Romans 6, 10, it says this, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, it says this, For I delivered to you as first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the Scriptures, Spurgeon says this, One thing I know, Christ thinks more of our sins than He does of our righteousness. For he gave himself for our sins. I never heard that Christ gave himself for our righteousness. He died for your sins so that you can be forgiven. He didn't die for your righteousness. He didn't die for your happiness. He didn't die for you to be prosperous in this world. He died for your sins so that you can be forgiven. 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We must confess our sins in order to receive salvation. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. And we need to understand this, that the depths of our sin requires a holy God, a perfect sinless God to die on the cross for us. And every sin that we have ever committed, from the past to the present to the future, every sin has been wiped away by the cross of Jesus Christ. He died to forgive you. There's a hymn that we sing. It's, it has these lines in it. It says, Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. This, the power of the cross, Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. This is the victory that we have. We stand forgiven. We don't sit in shame. We stand forgiven. Number three, the third aspect then of the gospel that you need to see here in the death of Christ to encourage you, believer, is this, is that Christ's death is substitutionary. It was sufficient. It's for sins. And it's substitutionary. The theologians call this the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We all know what a substitution is, right? We all know the substitute teacher who comes in Fills in for the actual teacher, and you're like, yes, yeah, sweet, it's going to be a great day. We're watching a movie today. Public school, that's what we did. Watched movies. This is different. This isn't a substitute as they fill in the place, and then the other one returns. This is an exchange. One for one. In this case, one for many. An exchange that happens, and it says there, the righteous for the unrighteous. Turn your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it talks about this great exchange, this, this great substitution that, that happened between the righteous one and the unrighteous. Second Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says this, for our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? It means this, that God, for our sake, for your sake, for my sake. 
God made him who knew no sin. Who's that? That's Jesus, the perfect, holy Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life that you could not live. That man, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, God made him to be sin. What does that mean? That means this, that he made Jesus Christ to be the sin bearer of all the sins in the world. He looked upon Jesus Christ and he saw your sin. He looked upon Jesus Christ and he saw the sins of the world and he made Christ who knew no sin to be sin. He exchanged Christ's righteousness for your sinful heart. And he put that sinfulness on the cross and he killed his own son, Jesus Christ. And he looked upon the cross and he saw all the sins of the world wrapped up in Jesus Christ in his death. And now God looks at you and who does he see? He does not see the sinner. He sees Jesus Christ in you. The righteous for the unrighteous. Christ became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Why is that so important? Because Christ, because God can't look upon sin. Christ, uh, God can't have sin in his presence. If we are going to be in eternity with him, then we must be covered in righteousness. Our sins must be dealt with. And so what God does is he takes the robes of righteousness and he wraps them around us. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as the bride adorns herself with jewels. This is what Christ sees in us. He sees the righteousness. God sees the righteousness of Christ within us. All my sins are covered. All my evil deeds, all my evil thoughts, all my actions that I've ever committed have been covered by the blood of Christ and His righteousness. What an incredible exchange. What an undeserving exchange. What could we have ever done to deserve that? The answer is nothing. You did nothing to deserve that. You've done nothing to deserve that. There's not enough that you could ever do, no, no amount of good works that you could ever do to deserve the grace and forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. It's solely by grace. Romans 5.19 says this, For as though the man's disobedience, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Tom Schreiner sums it up by this. He says this, Believers are to suffer just as Christ suffered. 
But Peter recognizes that the suffering of Christ and believers is not comparable in every respect, in that Christ's substitutionary death is the sole basis of the relationship of believers with God. Further, he emphasizes that Christ was sinless, something unmatched by any believer. Indeed, Christ's sinlessness is the basis upon which his death can function as a vicarious sacrifice for believers. The godly life of believers may win unbelievers to faith, but Jesus' suffering and death are unique since he alone, through his death, atones for sin. You say, why would he do this? What's the purpose of this? Well, look at the next line. What does it say in your Bibles in 1 Peter? This is why. This is so great, and I wanted you guys to underline this from the start. Hopefully you understand more now why. That He, what? Might bring us to God. Your sin has separated you from God. Christ's death on the cross, the exchange now, has brought you, what? Back in relationship with God. You say, why is that so important? It's so important because this, because God must judge all sin. Because if you are not in relationship with God, God is your enemy. Because if you're not in relationship with God, then God is to be the most feared person that you would ever know. Because uh, once comes death and then after death comes judgment. And if you are not right with God, you will be judged for eternity for your sins. And Christ came to bring you to God. This word there, bring us to right there, that, that phrase, it has the idea or it's used of a person who brings someone else into the presence of a third party. It, de- it describes someone being introduced or given access to another person. This was used of officials, as they'd bring people into the king's court, and this official would take them to them and introduce them to the king. And they verified someone's right to see him, and they they introduced that person to the king. And now Christ performs that function for believers. He opened the way of access to God. A couple years ago, I got the chance to um, go to a, a Portland Trailblazers basketball game. And it was me and my boys, and uh, the opposing team was the, the, the Pelicans, New Orleans Pelicans. Some of you guys are like, yeah, you lost me at Pelican. It's okay, there's two teams in Portland. And uh, I was down underneath because I was, uh, my brother was coaching on the team, and so he, he gave us access underneath. We were standing underneath the stadium, there and it was me and, and the three boys and we're just watching these players kind of come around and we're just in awe like just looking at him like wow that guy's like six foot nine he's huge and that guy oh I know who that guy is and we're standing there and and Drew Holiday player Drew Holiday comes up to us and he introduces himself to us we all say hi to him and he looks at Jackson I don't know why he chose Jackson maybe it was his smile but he looked at Jackson and he goes do you want to go in the locker room and I was like, yeah, I'll go in the locker room. Oh, wait, for Jackson. <laughs> and he takes Jackson. He puts his hand on his head and puts his kind of hand on his back, and he walks with him all the way back into the Pelican's locker room and introduces him to the people. There's no other way that any of us were going to get back there to go see 
or to be introduced by the people unless someone took us there. In the same way, you have no access to God unless Jesus Christ takes you there. You can't get to God on your own. You can't work your way to God. This is why Christ came, church. He came to bring you to God. He came, he came to give you access to God the Father. There's no other way under heaven by which you can be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the beauty of the gospel. You have access to God. He is now your friend. He is no longer your enemy. You once sit, sat at the wrong table. You once were on the other team against God, anti-God, destined for hell. But Christ came, died for your sins, and now you have access to God and you get a feast in heaven. It is waiting for you. The glorious gospel. You say, Joe, I, I don't know if I've ever heard that before. I want to believe. W what do I do? Romans 4, 5 says this, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Romans 10, 9 to 11 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The answer to the question, how do I have a relationship with God, is that you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you ask for the forgiveness of sins. And in that moment, you will be ushered, your soul will be ushered into the presence of God, and you will have a relationship with him. You must believe. The blinders that are covering your heart right now will be removed. And you'll see God as a loving and gracious God. Lastly is this, and real quickly, we'll finish with this. Christ's death was successful. Christ's death was successful. It says that he was made alive in the spirit. If Christ does not raise from the dead, our faith is in vain. Right? This is why we celebrate and make such a big deal out of Easter Sunday, out of the resurrection, because if God is in the grave, if Christ is in the grave, if he has never been resurrected, then our faith is in vain. But it wasn't. In the flesh, he died, but he was made alive in the spirit. Speaking here of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has been raised to life. 1 Corinthians 15, 13 says this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, the Apostle Paul knew it, then, our, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify that God, that he raised Christ. And we did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if Christ, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, 
your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But as it says there, he was made alive in the spirit. Christ is alive. That's the victory that he has over death. Ephesians 2, 5, it says that he made us alive together with Christ. Christ has victory over death. Romans 8, 11, we finish with this verse. But if Christ is in you, this is you, believer, Christ is in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells within you. And so Christ is victorious over death. Because you belong to Christ, then what? Then you will be victorious over death as well. You belong to Him. Victory in Christ is victory for us. And Christ stands in victory. And we have been made alive in Christ and with Christ. And we too are victorious with Him. So church, I know it's hard to be a Christian. I do. I know that. I know it's hard to stand for your faith. I know the people around you probably don't like it, that you're the one that actually upholds ethics and morals and the goodness and grace of God in your life. I understand that, but let me remind you, because you are in Christ, you have victory. In the end, Christ wins, and therefore, you win. Victory is set. And so we press on as victorious Christians because Christ conquered death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what more can we say than what your word has already said? You died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. How can we thank you enough? There's no way that we could suffer enough to get into heaven. There's no way that we could work enough to enter into a heaven. There's, there's no way to gain access to God unless you send your son, Jesus Christ, to us to die for us. And that's exactly what you did. And now we have access to you through faith in Jesus Christ. The glorious gospel. Lord, I'm sure this is a message that some have heard and time and time again. And hopefully it was not just a ho-hum, oh, the gospel message again. What's for lunch? But the reminder that we still don't deserve it. We still don't deserve this grace. Help us to, to think about the gospel as we go into tomorrow and as we are around unbelievers and as we 
we live our life and as we serve people, help us to be reminded of the gospel and the grace that we don't deserve, that our sins are forgiven and we can stand victoriously tomorrow because Christ is victorious and we belong to him. Encourage our hearts, Lord, in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.